Kevin and Anna, we do appreciate very much what you do. And uh, even that song I am, helps me focus again on, on um, what we need to focus on, and that is the things of the Lord. It's good to be here, is it not? Yeah. You think about it, there are places in the world where cannot do this, and we take it for granted. We choose not to meet once in a while. I think to our peril, and we have such a privilege to be able to meet together. Today, we continue our series in renowned prayers. And um, I've got two that I'd like to share with you this morning. And the first one is Abraham. Slide, please. Back one. First one is uh, Abraham's prayer for mercy on Sodom. Now, that sounds like an interesting prayer. What in the world is that all about? But we're going to see in a moment. And I'm going to go back and spend some time building the background. And then we'll talk about the actual prayer. We'll read that together. And then uh, derive some lessons from that prayer. The second prayer is Moses and Israel's song of thanksgiving. And right there you say, I thought this was about prayer. Do you remember when Lev started the series and he talked about what is prayer? And we said that prayer was communicating with God. You can communicate in prayer, in your quiet worship. God knows and hears all those things, and we can communicate by song. So our song can also be a prayer. Again, I'm going to set the stage for you. Looks like a lot of chapters, right? Genesis 37 through Exodus 14. We're going to do that in three or four minutes. Let's see how we do. But I want to kind of build the case of where they went. Then we'll actually analyze that song, how it breaks down. Then we'll review the actual song, lessons from the song, and a conclusion. Let's pray together and commit this time into the Lord's hands. Our Father, we are a privileged people to be able to meet, to have your word. Uh, What a privilege that is. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the prayers in it. And today, as we consider two of those, ask that you will open our minds to your Holy Spirit, that he will lead and direct, that the words I speak won't be mine, but your words. Lord, we commit this time into your hands. In Jesus' name alone. Amen. Slide, please. Abraham's prayer. Let's get into the prayer. All right, so details. So who is, this prayer involves Lot. Who is Lot? Okay, let's start right there. And we're going to kind of build this case and see how this prayer came to be. Terah, in Genesis 11, we learn that Terah fathered Abram. Remember, Abraham's name changes. He starts out as Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Terah, he really wants to go to Canaan, but he never makes it. He gets to Haran, and he gets permanently waylaid there. God calls Abraham, and you remember that. In in Genesis 12, we see that call. Haran, meanwhile, dies, and uh, Abram looks after his nephew, Lot. Okay, That's his brother's son. Father dies, Haran dies, and Abram looks after him. So Abraham, when Abram, when he leaves for Canaan, he takes Lot with them. They get to, they get to Canaan. And Abram and Lot thrive. 
And uh, you remember the story of how their herds get bigger and bigger, and then their herdsmen actually conflict with one another. And Abraham, being the guy he is, and Abraham is just a wonderful biblical character to take a look at. He's gracious, gracious, gracious. He's the big guy, right, in this thing? He's the uncle. Here's the nephew. He takes them out, and they look at all the land, and what does he do? He picks the lush valley, and Abraham takes the other. Remember, the reason why is we ought not fight. We're related. Let's get this right. Lot, where would you like to go? That's Abram. And that's his character. Wonderful thing. Lot chooses the lush plains of Jordan. Lot pitches his tent near Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he lives in Sodom. And the Bible is very quick to point out what Sodom is all about. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners. Lot and his family is captured by kings who overcome Sodom. And Abram goes after him. Again, did he have to do that? He could have said, you know, the dude picked the wrong place to live. And just give it, no, not not so. Abram goes and goes and gets him. And what does Lot do? Chooses to live in Sodom. That's what he does. Okay? Lot also becomes a, a uh, city father of Sodom. How do we know that? Because we find that he's sitting at the city gates. And that's a place of, of, that's revered, where the revered men sat. And, um, and then we find that in, in chapter 19, we really get a little bit more detail on the wickedness of Sodom. It says, men of Sodom burn with homosexual tendencies. And you remember the story there. We're not going to get into it now. But it, it, it's, it's gross. That's what it is. And the word Sodomites, here's kind of where it comes from, Sodom. And the practices of those who were there, which were homosexual. Okay. After Sodom is destroyed, his two daughters get lot drunk and they have babies. They get pregnant, have babies. Those babies, one is Ammon and the other is Moab. And they become two enemies of Israel. Well, pretty pathetic, right? I mean, you look at that and go, oh my goodness. All right. But let's, let's think about the immediate context here of, of Abraham's prayer. Let's see. Yep. Okay. So in this immediate context, um, there's a group of three people up here to Abraham. Abraham's in his tent at, um, at the Oaks of Mamre. And uh, Abraham is very generous. Again, he meets these three people. And Abraham very quickly realizes one of this may be God himself. And he says, hey, how about if I give you a little bit of water? And, uh, and what he does is he runs out and gets his best young uh, calf, and they prepare the calf. Now, mind you, that took a little while, right? It's not just wash your feet and here's a little bit of water. It's quite a feast he put on. Again, you see the character of Abraham. During that time, during that meeting, uh, the Lord promised that Sarah will have a son. You remember she's in the other room, Right. And she, under her breath, she says, oh, give me a break. And she laughs under her breath. And what does, what happens? The Lord says, uh, did Sarah laugh? And she says, no. He says, oh, yes, you did. And there's one of those evidence that says that one of those people who were there was the Lord indeed. He knew all these things. As the visitors are getting ready to leave, God chooses to reveal judgment on Sodom to Abraham. Why? Because from Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How will they be blessed? Well, it's the Jewish people, but out of the Jewish people comes Jesus Christ, 
who is the Savior of the whole world. Today we stand here because of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and what he did, descendant of Abraham. The Lord tells Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, does this mean that the Lord did not know? No, I would suggest something a little bit different. It means that the Lord gave this his immediate attention. He knew exactly what was going on. But in conveying this to Abraham, he says, this is, this is front and center right now, and we're going to take care of this issue. Slide. So here's the text. Let's read this together. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now, when we get to Sodom, we find out that two people went. Remember, three people were there, right? Okay. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Slide. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, Lord, for the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I, will, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. All right, let's start right here. Well, we talked about Lot, and, and often you hear Lot who made bad choices. As I look at it, And I think you could easily teach a lesson and say Lot seemed to have made bad choices. But the Apostle Peter makes a very interesting note about Lot. In his discussions where he talks about how the Lord knows to rescue godly from trials, that's the context of the passage, he says, And if he, that is God, rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man, righteous man, lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Here's the point. You can't just dismiss Lot. Maybe Lot was there as a witness. That's hard to imagine. But the point is, the inspired word of God deems Lot to be a righteous man. Okay? So we need to be careful how we judge. and We also need to look at all the scripture when we consider these things. That's the point and the only point I'm trying to make here about Lot. 
Why did God tell Abraham about destroying Sodom? Okay. Well, we've got the, the official reason, because out of him would come blessings to all the nations of the world. He was trying to establish something. Here's some thoughts for you. First of all, he's calling attention to Sodom's wickedness. Abram has a wonderful heart, doesn't he? By this time now, he's Abraham. He has a wonderful heart. He, he loves Lot. He wants to take care of him. And he's, pleading, well, he's trying to understand the Lord's righteousness. God, God is a holy God. We've talked about this often here. And that he must judge unrighteousness. He cannot tolerate unrighteousness. It must be dealt with. And so in the New Testament, you see God at war, literally, with unrighteousness. It must be taken care of. And thus, Jesus Christ is the peace, isn't he? He creates peace out of that war because of what he did for us. Establish that a holy God must judge unrighteousness. Third, God's judgment is righteous. It is. God doesn't act impulsively. He carefully considers it. And his judgments are perfect. We know that. And we can rest in that. But God is also gracious, isn't he? And we'll see that in some verses to come here as examples of that. He is a gracious God. And we can ask him for mercy. And he has a plan for that. He also wanted to help Abraham maybe understand that intercession works. Now, we haven't labeled the prayer yet, but we're going to call it an intercessory prayer. That's what this is. Abraham praying on behalf of something else. Beginning of the passage, you remember those words, drew near. Interesting concept and a challenge to each one of us. The Hebrew word, nagas, means a mind and heart reaching out to God in worship and confession. Not just physically draw near, but draw near in this sense. So my question to you and to me is, when did I last draw near to God? Sometimes we pray, and it's sort of me to you, right? That's not what draw near is all about. Drawing near to God is, is putting much more into it, your whole being into this thing, you know? and to reach out to God in worship and confession. Now, the prayer is pretty straightforward, isn't it? 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. God, are you going to do it? God says, no, not even for 10. Ultimately, he destroyed Sodom, didn't he? Were there 10 righteous? There were not. There were not. The Bible doesn't say exactly why Abraham stopped at 10. I offer you two thoughts, just the thought, my thoughts, the thoughts of commentators. Perhaps Abraham thought that at 10, well, okay, I give up, it should be destroyed. Maybe that was it. Don't know. But there's a very interesting passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was interceding for Judah. And the Lord says, do not intercede with me for Judah. Interesting point. Was it the spirit that said to Abram, that's enough, Abram? Don't know. We don't know. These are just thoughts. The nature of intercessory prayer. Slide, please. It's a fervent prayer, pleading to God. Can you see Abraham? He's being told that 
Sodom is going to be destroyed. He knows his nephew Lot lives there. He's concerned. Lord, Lord. Fervent prayer. Not just another prayer. A fervent prayer on behalf of something or another. The city of Sodom. Somebody. Lot and his family. Lot, a person who he had allowed to choose the best land. Lot, a person he had saved from kings who conquered Sodom. Lot, will he be destroyed too? Lord, please, please. Other examples? Uh, Samuel. You know, it's interesting. If you look at 1 Samuel 12, 23, and there's so much I'd like to do, and we just don't have the time to do that. There we find that... um, Samuel actually viewed intercession on behalf of Israel as part of his official duties. And for him, he viewed that the neglect of that intercessory prayer was sin. That's how he saw it. Moses, if you read his prayers, and you you remember some yourself, if you've gone through Exodus, and um, you, you see Moses on more than one occasion saying, Lord, Lord, please. Help these Israelites. Have mercy on them. Okay? Intercessory prayer. Nehemiah. Is, the Israelites had been, after, they, after the captivity, they had kind of gone all over the place, the diaspora, and, and he desired them to come back together and rebuild Jerusalem. Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17. Paul, prayer for the Ephesians. Intercessory prayer. Prayer by someone, fervent prayer, on behalf of another, intercessory prayer. Herbert Lockyer comments that too often we fail God and man because of our lack of desire for prevailing intercession. Have you thought about that? What opportunities have been missed because we just let it ride? John Knox He was one of the Protestant reformers in Scotland. And he said, Oh, give me Scotland or I die. Fervent prayer. The Queen of England, who became known as Bloody Mary, she was an ardent Catholic. And one of her life's mission was to persecute the Protestants. And she is heard to have been said, Bloody Mary feared Knox's prayers more than an army of soldiers. Do you think John Knox was fervent in his prayers? I tell you, he was fervent. Give me Scotland or I die. Fervence, fervency in prayer. Slide. So some keys to effective intercessory prayer. Well, first of all, we got to get our eyes off ourselves. How many times you start your prayer? Help me with this. Help me with that. Help me over there. Help me with this. Yes? Got to get off of ourselves. What are the needs of others? There are needs here in our church. You look around, they come to your mind. Needs, other people's needs. Recognize those needs. Humility before God. Abraham, this example of intercessory prayer. What does he think of himself? As he approaches God Almighty, his comment is, I who am but dust and ashes. Did he realize who he was? He did. And we must do so too. 
Are we in a position to go and demand God do anything? Get a life. No. <laughs> Psalm 8 comes to mind. You know, many others. You, you think about it. But you realize how little we really are and who God is. Wonderful. Now, there's another point I think that's important to make, and that is we must recognize God's sovereignty. Does the potter have the right to decide how the clay will be molded? As a New Testament example, he does. Are we in a position to question that? I don't think so. You look at Ephesians 1 or Romans 9, and we see that God has made a choice. Ephesians 1, we Christians have been chosen by God. The sovereignty of God. He chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. So that sovereignty is also important to acknowledge that, that that exists. But we must also recognize God's desire to save. Sometimes we just kind of give up, I think. Here's some passages for you to think about. John Davis writes, a commentary says, Far too often we pray as if we must overcome God's reluctance rather than seize upon his willingness. As an example of that, Ezekiel 33:11, where we find written, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God is must condemn in the presence of unforgiven sin. He must do so. He is a holy God. He must do so. But what is his desire? His desire is that we be saved. That's his desire. That's the truth of Scripture. Okay? And then for Christians, there's another point that can be made. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is passive, about, not, un, not unsaved, this is about saved people. As Christians, what can we do? With confidence approach God, knowing that God's desire is to help us. Slide, please. Effectiveness of prayer. This is important too. James says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now I will tell you, there's an interesting issue here to think about. The sovereignty of God, and yet it would appear that our prayer makes a difference. How do you reconcile those two? I can't fully do that. All I can do is teach what's in the word of God. We know that the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. The implication being, if that righteous person did not pray, the outcome may be different. Okay, But we also know that God makes choices. We know that. I cannot reconcile all those things. I can believe that. And then he says, remember the example is Elijah. And what do you say about Elijah? He says, Elijah was a guy like you and me. My words, obviously. And he says, and he prayed. And what happened? It didn't rain for three and a half years. And he prayed again. And it rained. And crops came forth. That's the example James uses is that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Okay, so you know the Lord, you're righteous. In his sight through Jesus Christ, what are you doing to pray? What are you doing to intercede this morning? Results. 
In the case of Abraham, Sodom is destroyed, but Lot and his family is saved. Nehemiah, Artaxerxes permits the return and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Jeremiah, don't intercede anymore for Judah. Don't want to hear it. That's what the Lord says. Not always that direct with us in our, our lives, you know, but nevertheless, there's a, there's a limit there. Okay. Now, there's a last point I would make that's pretty exciting, and that is that Abraham's intercession pictures Christ and the Holy Spirit's continuing intercession for us. Consider these verses. This one out of Hebrews. Consequently, he, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. One of the purposes of Christ right now is to make intercession for Christians. That's the, that's the text, that's the context in this case. Do you realize that this morning? That Christ lives to make intercession for you. When Satan comes and says, Mark sinned, Jesus steps in and says, but I paid the price. I paid the price. He intercedes for us. There may be issues in my life. Maybe it's not sin. And we can count on Jesus interceding for us before the, before the Father. What an exciting thing. That is one of the benefits of being a Christian, is that Jesus lives to intercede for us. But not only Jesus, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. How exciting. It's not just Jesus, it's also the Spirit. We also know that the Spirit takes our prayers, and when we get it wrong, he makes it right before God. That's what Scripture teaches. That is what the Holy Spirit's doing this morning for us too. So if you prayed to God, you prayed to Jesus, and it should have been God or whatever, he sorts that all out for us. And he makes sure by the time it gets to God, it's, it's done correctly. <laughs> what a comfort that is too. That's the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. So, we may intercede for others. Christ himself, it's his business to intercede for us. That should give us great confidence, great confidence to rest in him. All right, there's a few lessons from the prayer. Let's see, we need to hustle on, and let's take a look at Moses' and Israel's song. We've got quite a few chapters to go through here, too, so let's see what we can do. So, how in the world, what's Egypt got to do with Israel, and how did it all happen? Well, here's the, here's the story in brief. Remember, Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. Okay, He ends up in Egypt. Don't have time to go into all Joseph's stories. There's Potiphar and going to prison and so forth. Ultimately, what happens? He becomes Pharaoh's deputy. Yes, that's what he becomes. Second only to Pharaoh. Famine brings Jacob and his family to Egypt. The story's a little bit longer. Famine in Canaan, brothers go down to Egypt to get food, right? They had food in Egypt because Joseph saved all the food for many years. He knew the famine was coming. The reason he gets elevated to deputies because of his interpretation of those visions that Pharaoh had. So ultimately there's food there. And then, uh, then, Pharaoh, uh, then Joseph says, hey, bring your family down here. So Jacob and his whole family moves to Egypt. Jacob's family multiplies, and there comes a time where a pharaoh comes in, into power who does not know Joseph. 
And he goes, oh my goodness, look at all these Jews. They're all over the place. This is scary. You know, they could rise up and take us down. So what is he, what's his answer? His answer is, we're going to, uh, it's slave labor. It's, we're going to just make it impossible for them to do that kind of thing. Then he goes a step farther and he says, what we're going to do is we're going to kill all the baby boys. And so Moses' mother has a baby, has a baby, hides him, but it gets to a point where she can't hide him anymore. She builds a little ark, puts it in the river. Pharaoh's daughter comes to the River Nile to bathe, and her maiden finds this. And they open it up, and there's Moses. And Pharaoh's daughter takes that baby home and makes it her son. What happens? Moses grows up. But he's still a Jew at heart, and he goes out one day, and he sees a taskmaster oppressing the Jews, and he kills them. Then the word, then it becomes clear that other people know about this. He thought he did it in secret. He flees. God is not done with him. He calls Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go back, set my people free. Time's about 400 years now from the time Jacob got to Egypt, and now... Now he says, and remember that, there's a long story in there about Moses and, and I can't do this and so on and so forth. But all he goes to, goes, to, um, goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people free. What's Pharaoh say? No, 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 no. Takes ten plagues, the last of which is firstborn son is killed unless there's blood over the, over the uh, doorpost. So then Pharaoh says, okay, okay, okay. Um, I'll let you go. Slide. So the Jews camp by the Red Sea. And you know what? They see dust coming. And what's happened? Pharaoh decides, hey, wait a minute. I've lost all my workers. I need to have them back. So they're going to go get them. Okay? So the Jews, seeing the, the Egyptians approaching, say, you know what? You know, it was tough being a slave in Egypt. But you know what? We ate well. It was okay. Why did you bring us all the way out here to die in the wilderness? Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. What a great verse, isn't it? Think about that. There's a message right there, isn't it? Just be still. The Lord's got this under control. So what happens? The waters are parted. And the Jews move through those waters. And then what happens? The waters return and kill all the Egyptians. And summary then, in Exodus 14, 30 and 31, it reads, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Slide. So let's think a little bit about this song. We're going to do this because the parts are important. Then we're going to do the song and then the lessons. So the song, communicating to God a prayer, praise for his power in saving the Israelites from Pharaoh's army. It's a wonderful example of godly praise and thanksgiving in recognition of what God had done. There are many other prayers, including uh, Deborah and Barak's song in response to victory over Sisera and Jabin of Canaan, Hannah's song at the birth of Samuel, Mary's response to Elizabeth's greeting, just a few, but there are many of these types of prayers, a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. 
So here's how it breaks down. We'll go over this a couple times, and I think you'll see it. First verse, a summary of Pharaoh's army being defeated, the prelude. The first stanza, three stanzas. Now, if you look at I've looked at five or six commentators. They all have broken down a little bit different, but the themes are pretty close. It's more like which verses goes where and so on and so forth. Second stanza, or first stanza, the strength of vanquishing Pharaoh and his army. Take a look and see, and then you may divide a little bit differently. These aren't inspired thoughts, but the topics in there are are God's thoughts. Second stanza, verses 7 through 10, focuses on the power of God over nature, and you'll see it. It characterizes God as blowing through his nostrils and so on and so forth. Okay. And then the third stanza proclaims the superiority of God over the gods of the world. No other God could do these things, is the idea. Then there's a narrative postlude, not part of the song, but sort of summary. And then we, I added a few verses, and that is the antiphonal response. So antiphonal meaning over here they're saying this, and on the other side they're saying this, and it kind of goes back and forth, antiphonal singing. Sometimes we do that here, you know, the, we, the men sing and then the women echo, antiphonal, okay? Response by Miriam and the ladies, it repeats the words of the prelude. Here we go. Prelude, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he was triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. First stanza, first stanza emphasizing triumph over the Egyptians. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Second stanza. This is the one where it's God using, using the forces of nature to overcome. In greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Can you see it? The waters part in the Red Sea. Can you imagine that picture? Wow, wouldn't that be something to see something like that? At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake the enemy as the Egyptians. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have it fill, have it fill of them. Oh, I might have got something wrong there. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. What a picture, isn't it? They cross through. The Israelites go, oh, here they're going to come next. What's the Lord do? Those waters go, whoa. They're all gone. That's the picture. Third stanza. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deed, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Can you imagine that word getting out? Do you know what happened 
with the Israelites, they walked through the Red Sea. The Egyptians were following. Can you imagine? Wow. Now the chiefs of Edom, Edom is what? Sons of Ishmael? Yes, right. Yes. Esau. Okay. Um, they're, they're trembling, seizes the leaders of Moab. Moab, now you know who Moab is, right? Son of, actually it'd be the, it'd be the grandson of Lot. That's what's going on there. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till our people. O oh Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. No match for any other gods. Postlude. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Antiphonal response. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, same words as the beginning, prelude, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. We don't know exactly if this followed every stanza. Remember, stanzas aren't clear to us either. Or was it at the end that they did this? Don't know. But can you imagine that? Can you imagine the scene, having walked through the sea, now on the other side? Wow. Wow. And out of that comes this song of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Slide. Well, I think early, and I think about these uh, prayers of thanksgiving, the one that often comes to mind is, remember Daniel? The edict is out, and it says you must pray only to the image of the king. And what does Daniel do? As he had always done, he goes back and he prays three times with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should be on our hearts. And as we develop this, it even becomes clear. Look at those next sections. The mandate for prayer with thanksgiving. Paul says in Ephesians, giving thanks, I underline the word, always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. A little bit more details in case you didn't understand in all things or always for everything. He writes to the Thessalonians, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now I want you to think about that. All circumstances. Are you thankful for all everything? I think we often work hard at thanking him for the good things. Have you thanked the Lord lately for the trials you've been going through? Shouldn't you? In everything? I'll give you an example. It's the 14th of October, and I extended my taxes. I finally figured out where the $3 difference was. (laughs) I got it worked out. Paid my TurboTax, ready to submit, e-file, right? what's What's it say? 
Can't get there from here. You got to fill out this form. But I didn't do those things. Oh man, I was frustrated. Of course, maybe if I'd started a little sooner, it would have been helpful. <laughs> and I thought about this verse. In fact, I was getting ready to do a devotions at Emmaus, and I was going to do it on Thanksgiving. And some of these are from there. And I said, Lord, thank you. This is not a sin issue, okay? Thank you. Obviously, I need some character development here. (laughs) So I'm thankful for what you're doing in my life. In all circumstances. Now, one more verse, and then we're going to look at why we can be thankful. Do not be anxious for anything. Heard this. Matthew talked about this this morning. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... I don't think we do this enough. We, we're quick on the request side. We don't do very good with thanksgiving. But the biblical prescription is with thanksgiving. And it's not wrong to thank the Lord for the things that you're going through that you may not wish upon yourself or anybody else. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Slide. Why we can and should be thankful. Well, God loves us and has a plan for our lives. Does anybody disagree? Of course you agree. We say it, but we don't act like it. Yes? So when your car blows up, what's the deal? Thank you, thank you, Lord. Not sure what you have in this for me, but I'm thankful. I'm trying hard to be thankful. That is the will of God in Christ Jesus, right? That's what we read. Got to get this right. But we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe it this morning? Well, then we need to act like it and thank him for it. And you know what? When I thank the Lord about those taxes that I didn't think were get, get done, the next morning I woke up, I found it, and was all set. Okay. <laughs> I think then we get real victory over some of these circumstances. We tend to toil over things, don't we? Just give them to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Show me the way. You're a big God. You can get this worked out. Rest in him. The peace that passes all understanding. Prayer. With thanksgiving. Count it all joys, my brother, says James, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Is there anybody who's not going to endure these trials? No. It's part of what we are as Christians. It's intended for our good and our growth. That's why we ought to be thankful. It's okay. So if another Christian looks at you, you know, I've had some trials lately. Well, we all say, we all say, yeah, me too. We're in this together. And we ought to encourage each other when that happens. Slide. The importance of thanksgiving in our prayer life. First of all, it establishes the right perspective, doesn't it? We are but dust and ashes. Quoting Abraham. God is infinite, perfect, holy, sovereign, loving creator add what you like 
our infinite God. He absolutely deserves our worship and praise. He is in control. When we struggle, as Matthew said, are we not making God less than he is? He is our risen, conquering Savior. That is Jesus Christ. Okay. It helps us take our eyes off our sin-troubled earth and instead focus on the hope of God in heaven. Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then I think of the words of a hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things on earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Doesn't that make sense? Turn your eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, not the stuff that's going on around us. When we come to church, we come not to look at each other. We come for Jesus. That's what we come for. We look at each other. It doesn't take long to find warts, does it? We all got them. We come for Jesus. And when we see each other in the light of Jesus, then it all makes a lot of sense. We also have to recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from above. It's not because of what we did. That's pride, is it not? I can do this. I can do this by myself. This is pretty good. All good gifts come from above. When we praise our infinite loving God and his faithfulness, our problems get lost in his greatness. I'm saying it again a different way. Reviewing God's past faithfulness encourages for the future. It should. Think about it. You have lots of needs this morning. Now think back. What has the Lord done for you? Aren't you alive? Are you saved? Are you going to heaven? Has he helped you to this point? Will he not help you in the future? He will. He will. Be thankful. Be thankful. Slide. So we've roared through a lot of material, and I've got two, three, or, three or four simple thoughts for you as we finish up today. Intercessory prayer. An often overlooked option that can change history. You think so? That's what scripture says. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now remember, it's important to pray, pray, pray for what God wants, his will, right? So we just pray to pray. It's not about selfish prayers. It's about desiring what God wants. Our desire for each other should be what God wants in that person. That's what we want, not what we want. We need to be careful with that. So for whom or for what do you need to be fervently praying? Do it. We studied one example today. Prayers of praise and thanksgiving. It is a biblical mandate. Did you see any options in the verses we read? Is it, does it say, pray when you're feeling good? Or pray about those things that really went your way? It doesn't say anything like that. In everything. Regardless of the circumstances. Look at Daniel again. The circumstances were bleak, were they not? What did he do? What did he do? To say he went home and fretted? 
It does not. It says he went home and as he had always done, he prayed with thanksgiving three times a day. That's what it says. So are you continually praising and thanking God? We should in everything. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we pause to thank you for who you are. You are a great God. And uh, as we looked at these two prayers, we're impressed that our prayer life needs to be improved. Father, you have given us a wonderful thing. We can come before you with confidence and intercede. Lord, lay on us the burdens of who and what we need to intercede about. Our Father, we are selfish. We are often full of needs, and we do not as easily thank you for who you are and what you've done. Father, help us to be more joyful, to be more uh, in an attitude where we bring more praise and thanksgiving to you. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to get together. We commit our week into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.